Hello, everybody, and welcome to The One. I'm your host, Shabad Singh. As you know, we are in the grips of a global pandemic of the coronavirus, and we are seeing uh, mass suffering across the world uh, due to the devastating virus and the economic impacts uh, that are coming along with it. The United States recently, uh, the Dow Jones had its uh, largest drop, uh, I believe, since the Depression. Uh, and people, more importantly, workers who are at the bottom of the chain are at great risk of falling deeper into poverty, medical debt, uh, and despair. I'm heartened to see the acts of six around the world who have mobilized amongst themselves to work to bring food to all people in their communities. Uh, there are efforts in Australia and New York and I'm sure countless others where Sangats are coming together to uh, prepare uh, healthy vegetarian meals and to deliver them to people's homes. Uh, this to me is the essence of who we are and it is part of a growing movement that I hope will change this world for the better. In times of great crisis, the economic and political and social contradictions in our society become more and more and more apparent. If there was any crisis that made it clear that all people are in this together, it would be a global pandemic. This is it. There is no escaping it. Even the wealthy, even the powerful are susceptible to it. As this crisis continues, even with the economic stimulus that the American government is offering of $2 trillion, even with the massive investment uh, around the world, which is commendable, the fundamental structure is not being addressed. The fundamental structure of our economy and our politics are not being criticized or addressed or examined in any way by those in power, save a very, very you know, small few. So now is the time when people will become more and more pressurized and more and more crunched by this system and they will be in despair and they will be angry and they will be sad and scared. I believe that it's our mission as six to maintain our spirit of Chardikala, to work amongst each other and with our neighboring communities of all backgrounds to help each other and to be ready for movement, to be ready to push for change. And that change must be one of deepening democracy, of deepening transparency amongst the powerful, and of equalizing the economic structure to be one that is by and for working people. The powerful are 
yes, mobilizing and giving some economic stimulus to working people. Um, but they do not want things to change. And they will do anything that they can to maintain the status quo. So as these times deepen and as the crisis deepens, as it no doubt will because of the late action, for example, in the case of the United States, and the just simple inequity of our structure and with the lack of investment in social welfare, uh, these, these, this crisis will continue and the status quo will be questioned. So keep your eyes open, maintain faith, stay in Chardikala, meditate and pray for all of those impacted and do anything and everything that you can to help others. And when the time comes for us to stand up and to lead a movement grounded in the decency and welfare of all people, I hope that all six around the world will remember the roots of our movement and the continued struggle throughout history of by six against the forces of injustice and the powerful to bring welfare to all people. Uh, so that time is coming and uh, it doesn't matter what kind of sick you are. And if you're not a sick, of course that doesn't matter either. We're all in this together. But uh, have no questions about grounding your strength, grounding your fight and your resistance and survival in the Guru and the teachings of the Guru because they're universal, timeless, and will carry us through this. Um, I send all of my love and support to any and everyone who listens to the show and to all of your families. Uh, and I hope that if I can be of any service to you, you'll reach out to me. Um, please stay safe, stay inside, listen to the um, scientists, to the medical professionals. And as the Akal Tukit uh, Sandesh recently said, let's never turn towards superstition. We must maintain our focus on the truth and facts. We must act with the clarity of, of our Guru's consciousness. And uh, I believe that we will survive. I believe that not only will we survive, we will thrive through this crisis. And on the other end, I think that we will bring about change. And um, we're living through history right now. And I am grateful to all of the support and all of the interest that folks have given to this show. And I hope that we can continue uh, to build conversations about how we come together and how we move for change for the betterment of all people in this world uh, as a community. So thank you. I love you, be safe, and all the best.
To that end, today we will be hearing from somebody who is focused on those types of things, bringing people together and examining our reality uh, to understand to understand its effect on us and to understand how our environments, cultures, history, politics affect and specifically our mental health. Uh, and that guest is Shedan Jitsin, who's done incredible work in the UK uh, on efforts uh, towards mental health awareness among uh, the South Asian and Punjabi community. And we will hear about that today. And let's take cues from his work and the work of uh, Trekki to continue bringing people together, continue examining our history and the context that bring us to the moment we're in. Uh, and let's use that knowledge and that promotion of well-being to then turn, bring it to others and uplift the world. Sharanjit Singh, welcome to The One. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on today. Um, so I wonder if you can tell us about, um, before we get into the, talking about the work of uh, the organization that you helped found, Tadabki, can you tell us about uh, the trajectory that led you to the field of study um, that you worked in? What, what did you do? Uh, what did you study? And uh, how did that lead to um, founding the organization? Sure thing. So Turkey, as you say, is an organization that works with Punjabi communities to reshape their approaches to mental health. And it's quite strange, the trajectory that I took um, when we founded Turkey in October 2017. And it's one that isn't really based in healthcare, or it's not really one that is based in me overtly going out to try and work with Punjabi communities as a whole around the topic of mental health. And I guess I will answer using two parts. The first being my experiences, my personal experiences, which led to me seeing a need for something like Daraki. And then the other side, which is my academic experiences, which almost directed the way in which I was to have this conversation. So personally, when I was transitioning from home to university at the age of 18, I was moving from a community which was very densely populated with South Asians, with Afro-Caribbean communities. It was one in which me as a the star-wearing Singh didn't feel particularly out of place. And when I went to university, I went to one where the city was fairly diverse, but the university population itself was not representative of the incredibly diverse population of the UK. And I guess for me at that time, it raised a lot of questions about who I, who I was, who I was in this type of society, how I was to act, you know, what did it mean to be successful in these types of areas? And as well as that, obviously I was like an 18 year old going out living on their own for the first time you know cooking for themselves you know having to look after themselves and for me 
I found that an incredibly difficult mm. task to manage. And I guess going from somewhere where you do have constant contact and constant surroundings from people with diverse experiences and people who come from so many different walks of life to one in which the rules of the game seem so limited and the rules of the game seem so narrow that put increased pressure on me um when i when i was in my first year and like this led to me really questioning you know what it was that i grew up with was what i grew up with an effective toolkit for me to succeed in this world, this real world, this open world. And, you know, there was a massive, a massive tension there. There was a massive tension between, you know, what my life at home might have been and what my life at university might have been. And I guess not resolving that tension and having that level of pressure from two different parts of your life, two different parts that you perceive to be irreconcilable. Um, it was a really a really difficult experience and over a year and a half two years these difficulties really merged with some of the you know microaggressions some of the real kind of racially based microaggressions that I was experiencing in my day-to-day -day life at university that made me feel further out of place it made me feel as though you know what I don't really belong here at this university but you know I don't feel as though I belong at home either and it was in my, you know, two and a half, about a quarter of the way through my third year that I was working with some other students to make a Sikh society. And we didn't have enough people to sign up to make it an official society. So we couldn't actually establish a Sikh society at the university. And so we had to think, okay, what can we do? Let's do, let's do a Punjabi society. And by this point, I'd kind of increasingly socially isolated myself at university. The main thing keeping me there was the work I was doing and my professors. I wasn't really engaging with people on my course. You know, I was very very different to what I had been before going to university. And that was something that also played on my mind. Like, how could I have gone from being someone who was so personable, someone who was so engaging with others, to someone who was so reserved and introverted? And around this type of time, we made the uh, Punjabi Society. And what we found was loads of people wanted to be involved. So we thought, okay, great, let's do a, let's do a little kind of jar and chat event. And we had the Jar and Chat event, and I remember it being in this massive room. People were, you know, drinking char, people were having samosa and stuff like that. But what I found was that beyond being able to serve them food, I wasn't able to speak to anyone in that room. And that was so bizarre for me. And I, you know, I really did want to speak to people in that room. I wanted to chat with people, I wanted to share experiences, I wanted to try and bond with people, I wanted to try and, you know, make friends and make lasting meaningful relationships but I just couldn't speak with anyone and I remember every 10 minutes going out of the room going on to you know the internet on my phone and checking football scores you know every 10 minutes I come out and check the football scores just make it look like I was doing something but in reality I was going outside of the room just to think oh man why can't I go in there and have conversations why can't I go in there and do what I want to do what is stopping me from doing that and I guess that was the first mm. time I thought, you know what, maybe there is something up, you know, is it something that's wrong with me personally? Is it something that is, you know, what, what is this, what is this that's happening? And at that time I was incredibly 
lucky to have housemates who really shaped a space in which I could unashamedly be myself. So there were very little expectations, very little feelings of shame, feelings of judgment, very little negative stigma on what we spoke about and what we were able to discuss openly. And I remember having a chat with one of my housemates and he was just sat down and I said, oh, you know, this happened the other day. This is how I felt. And he just said, you know, maybe it might be something mental health related. But that was the, you know, that was the only time he said, you know, oh, this might be mental health related. But over the next you know, four or five months, you know, we all used to just sit down. We used to mm. all have our dinner, sit down and just chat. We used to play FIFA, just chat. And what we were able to speak about topics that were so so personal in a way that felt natural. And I guess for me, it was a time when I could learn about what I was experiencing and learn about what my flatmates themselves had experienced as well. And we could all learn from each other and work to better ourselves. And we all supported each other through that betterment as well. Like we all kind of got into got into like kind of routines, but we managed to overlap our routines. It was it was quite it was quite natural and quite organic and quite in sync which was which was reflecting on it now it is quite rare to to see something like that and luckily um i was able to finish um up, finish up at university and then i wanted, went on to start my masters but looking back i once once i started my masters i looked back and i thought wow i was so lucky to have that type of support structure i was so lucky to have people with whom i could discuss openly with whom i could speak without fear of being judged speak without fear of being negatively stigmatized and i look back home and you know whilst i was going through my difficulties i didn't really speak to anyone at home i didn't speak to my family or my friends back home because i thought i perceived that they wouldn't really know how to help me at this period and also to be honest i wanted to be seen as being yeah. independent you know, living away you know i kind of can kind of look after myself type thing and i remember looking at the community in which I grew up back home and just seeing people who were going through similar types of difficulties but were unable to actually access that type of support and this was all you know around about the time I was thinking about topics like you know mental health thinking about topics of mental health within marginalized communities and you know this was all slowly leading up to the development of, of Taraki and I'll just kind of briefly go into the academic background which led me to start Taraki in the way I did so in second year, third year, I was increasingly interested in topics around gender, sexuality, and particularly the intersection between ideas of masculinities, ideas of ethnicities, and ideas of faith. And this led to a whole load of really enlightening and really fantastic experiences reading um reading authors R.W. Connell, who writes on masculinities, who wrote on masculinities in the 1980s, looking at authors such as Charlotte Hooper, who wrote Manly States, um, which breaks down the topic of international relations and looks at masculinities within that whole discipline itself. And there's another great author. There's an edited volume called Queering India, um, Same-Sex Relationships and Eroticism in Indian cult Indian History and Culture. Um, you know, the, the title might be semi-problematic, but the actual content was fantastic. And what these what these texts and what these disciplines opened me up to was thinking about how power operates within our societies, how power operates differently within 
certain parts of society compared to other parts of society. And it's thinking about masculinities and particularly heterosexual masculinities as underpinning a lot of what our society has come to become, come to kind of develop as. And for me, there was a kind of click point, you know, the kind of light bulb pinged on above my head and I just thought well okay I can see how this these networks of power work I can see how they might interact to shape certain experiences in one way shape certain experiences in another way and related to something like patriarchy especially when thinking about say Punjabi straight Punjabi men for example you know that th- there is certainly an idea that you know men men benefit from patriarchy but men benefit differently there are different there are different levels of benefit from patriarchy yeah. and structures like you know you know heteronormative masculinity and for me i looked at that and i thought this this does make a lot of sense i i, I can really understand how how this functions within our society and understanding that as a patriarchal dividend so connell calls it a patriarchal dividend and it's seeing it really as a as something that might offer a level of a level of benefit but in reality the level of benefit it has varies massively amongst amongst the population and mm. around this time as well so i wrote my undergrad thesis um on deconstructing british sikh masculinities in relation to a particular event so it was 2016 some um interfaith and non-college protests at Leamington Goddorheim in the UK. I was looking at media portrayals of that event and trying to understand how masculinities had been constructed within that. And a lot of these a lot of these forays into academia really just made me think about how structures of masculinity really only offer a level of true benefit to a tiny, tiny portion of people. However, ideas of masculinities within, say, Punjabi cultures or within Sikh populations are still so overriding. We're still so protective of them. We're still so we're still so engrossed and encapsulated and romanticized by so many of these masculinities because they offer us, I feel, a way of feeling accepted, a way of feeling integrated, especially um, if we're thinking about topics such as you know martial masculinities within Punjabi and Sikh communities and that proximity that it had to British masculinities during the time of empire that was that was uncanny they were our you know yeah. at, at that time at a time of imperialism at a time of increased militarism having a masculine um, you know masculine identity which really fits that mold was the best thing you could have to integrate mm. into that society and th- th- this was one of the things that I brought up in this in in my in my research and uh, during undergrad was this whole the proximity to what is the proximity to whiteness um, through a gendered lens um, and understanding it in terms of masculinities and you know what that might mean now um, when we're talking about masculinities within communities that have really enjoyed the benefits of being proximate to dominant masculinities in our society. And so I guess, you know, all of this stuff was going around in my head for about two and a half years um, during my undergrad. And when it came to these thoughts around mental health, you know, it was all well and good sitting down, writing papers, mm-hmm. writing essays, which would be marked and yes. never looked at again. We're writing things that you felt personally very 
engrossed by, you felt very convinced by, but writing things that you know aren't necessarily going to get out there and enact in, in, in change. When I was thinking about this type of thing, it was it, you know kind of overlapping with with the Turkey work, and I was like, okay, how can we have this type of discussion around gender, around sexuality, around masculinities? How can we have this in a way which doesn't appear preachy? a way that appears a way that appears palatable and a way that we can actually have a conversation on people's terms as opposed to us projecting how this conversation should be guided and so that is what led to Turkey's you know first main project so if i can interrupt you real quick before we get into if we before we get into the the work of Tureki, I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about this kind of theoretical framework that you um, developed in your studies um, and that you're applying here, because this is a very interesting um, idea. You're talking, we're talking about, we're talking um, about mental health. Uh, okay, so, so first of all, mental health is often compartmentalized into this sort of, um, like this sort of uh, bite-sized, diagnosable individual issue, um, right? Where it's like, um, yep. you know, you go to a specialist who uh, diagnoses you, mm-hmm. who who looks at your individual, um, you know, experience, your individual brain chemistry, whatever you're dealing with. And based on whatever their assessment yep. is, they will assign you counseling or drugs or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But what you're starting, where you're beginning your assessment of mental health is from a societal and structural perspective, as opposed to an individual yes. atomized one. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, this. are you familiar with the work of Silvia Federici? Oh yes, the um, uh, thingy of the thingy of the witches, Caliban, the Caliban, and the Caliban and the witches. Yeah. So it's the whole idea that the woman's body. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna. So um, so there's this whole concept in like Marxist thought of primitive commu- uh, accumulation, right? Like the idea that in order to make the system, the economic system under which we live. Uh, capitalism, you had to, first of all, you had to, uh, you had to destroy commonality, you had to destroy the common lands, Uh, you had to destroy communal living and labor, in how which is how a lot of farm work and a lot of agrarian work was done. And in that process, you, you know, capitalists and power brokers were able to accumulate primitively. This is before we have, uh, and, 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 uh, correct me if I'm wrong in my theory here, but I think this is kind of, kind of, kind of interesting way of maybe looking at what we're talking about here. Um, but, but you have a way of accumulating, uh, basically through brute force, um, and the, the law, um, which is kind of usually the same thing. Um, accumulating land and property, et cetera. So Federici's whole thing is that actually it was, it wasn't just primitive accumulation of land and the, I guess you'd say the. Yep. Yep. The, the external. 
Yes, the creation of a the creation of a working class and mm-hmm. and you know peasants fleeing uh, countrysides uh, for cities to work for capitalists, etc. Yeah. Also, an internal mm-hmm. uh, accumulation where you had to restructure the social relationships of all people in society in order for them to be able to be exploitable. Um, and so there is like, and she talks about all these, I mean, she talks about mm-hmm. the witch hunts, the, or the yep. witch trials, the Salem witch trials is basically, uh, a, a, you know, this is a way to de- completely disrupt, uh, women's control over yep. their own reproductive capacity um, you know, women who have, um, you know, empirical systematized, you know, herbal, uh, knowledge, uh, and medicinal knowledge who have this very important position in society to minister over birth and, and family, et cetera. And, and basically, you, you know, then we go to this kind of atomized doctor, you know, based medic, you know, professional based, way of of you know birthing children etc so it's a long tangent but um but i wonder if you can talk a, a little bit more about what these you know like like you know we're talking about whiteness we're talking about patriarchy we're talking about these structures and and it sounds like that and i think that you know something that we haven't really touched on yet is is how this relates to uh the economic structure of our society. And I don't know if there's an, if you want to make, if you want to comment on that or talk a little bit about that before we move forward, but it seems like one of our major, one of the major large structural motivating factors in our mental health. 100%. And I think you, you know, you can't have conversations around mental health without having conversations about imperialism. You know, whatever different form this imperialism takes, you know, reading, say, Franz Fanon and understanding the impact of colonial structures upon one's psyche or reading other types of authors who talk about these these things, you know, you can't separate it from society more widely. And I guess my my first understanding of something like mental health and its relation to society was through colonialism and was was through um, authors like Franz Fanon. But then, as you as you say, how else can we characterize our society? What other hierarchies? What other systems operate which really do you know accumulate resources, accumulate power for for the few um, and as you say, as we can't, we can think about you know capitalism. We can think about you know increasing an increasing move towards cultures within which we are you know individual humans are increasingly individualized and increasingly exploited and increasingly alienated from you know their their, their work and their product we can link it directly back to the effect that it has on our on our psychology and i think one of the one of the most interesting things for me and it reminds me of something from back home is around our area there are lots of allotments and those are those are like gardening tracks that anybody can yeah. apply for and and run right 
yeah it's like you know if you're if you're a senior or if you're a student it's like you know 12 pound 12 pounds for a year um and you get this space and you get this space and i know i've i've seen allotments and i've just seen absolute swathes of punjabi elderly punjabi people right tending to tending to land and growing you know we'll be growing different types of vegetables you know um different you know whatever growing whatever but having that connection with the work mm-hmm. um and it for me it really paints a contrast with you know the way we understand our own kind of production in our society and the way that we are so alienated yeah. <laughs> largely from 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 what we are actually kind of producing in inverted, comm- in inverted commas yeah and i guess and i guess what's also quite cool about this is david graber an anthropologist from the lse wrote a great wrote a great book called bullshit jobs <laughs> and it taught and it talks about this lack of meaning this lack of you know this existential question this this lack of meaning people are living on a day-to-day basis deriving from their work and i think he put a he put a small survey out probably about 10 years ago now asking people you know what they found what they thought about their jobs from a from a critical standpoint what they thought about their jobs Mm -hmm. and you know do they did they do they think their jobs are necessary and he had lots of replies from people who just said what i do is completely unnecessary (laughs) what i do what i do is literally pointless Mm. but i'm doing it and i'm kind of you know there are different ways in which our society are is creating work for people but is you know it's not creating work with meaning it's creating work just for work's sake right um and you know he he takes the question and he says you know the you know the, the the main economist in the 20th century i think he was talking about keynes and keynes keynes had predicted that you know by whatever time in the future we'd be able to have um a much shorter working week because you know the way that he wanted things to go you know we could with 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 how people presume the free market would work right. you know it would work for the benefit of the free market to then actually you know reduce uh reduce pressures on people um but you know in fact in the last you know 30 40 years we've seen a massive increase in different types of jobs which just play no part within an overall system and a system that is becoming increasingly increasingly knotted and increasingly complex and increasingly you know impermeable Hmm. um just for the sake of kind of more jobs and just for the sake of keeping people within that system itself. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, and you know, going back, all, all going back to mental health, it's all in, it's all in, you know, completely, completely related. And I, I guess having these types of conversations, whether it's about the economic structures, whether it's about social structures, whether it's about kind of, uh, you know, different things that govern our lives it massively massively shaped how i try and understand um the topic of mental health the topic Mm -hmm. of you know you know mental health as 
you know, even 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 the term mental health is something that is contested. Um, right. It's it's uh, it's understanding these thoughts, these feelings, these experiences, these very real experiences, whilst not compartmentalizing them and attributing them to a limited set of factors. You know, which we feel as though might be the case, we might be appropriate. Um, but yeah, I guess. The other, the other kind of authors that have really, really, you know, contributed so much to my personal understanding and kind of, in a, in a sense, um, growth. You know, people like Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, mm. you know, Patricia Hill Collins, Kimberly Crenshaw. You know, just even just reading about that whole academics academic side but then also the activist side so thinking about yeah. people like you know marsha p johnson and marsha p johnson's role within say the stonewall riots and understanding how that has been you know historically whitewashed and just it's all of all of these things combine for me and they essentially combine and set a set a precedent from which i can try and engage in these type in this type of work and how yeah. did the how did the um theoretical work that we've talked about here um then translate into um the well and and i think it's 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 a different model than than what 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 Traki is doing is maybe a different model than what people might expect from something that calls itself like a mental health organization you mm -hmm. described the work that Taraki does as activism so how does the theory uh translate into the practice so and what it, does that look it, like try, this is this is the main question and it this is you know um we're, we're talking like pedagogy of the press for la paula Freire, talking about how we bridge this gap between reflection and action how we pair reflection and action in a way that doesn't just make us people who will sit down and think for eons <laughs> or, or and it just and it also makes us people that don't just act right. without that thinking or without that reflection and this is you know something that we're constantly constantly reflecting on with Draki. it's something that we might feel you know it's really easy to think oh we have the answer now but you know you can easily become stagnated and you know unless you are coming up with new creative innovative solutions to these types of conversations um yeah it can be really easy just to think oh yeah you know we've done this one thing let's just you know let's just Put 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 a lid on it, and then that's done. We've kind of successfully uh, brought together the theory and the practical aspects of you know mental health within Punjabi communities. That you know that's done now, but you know it is a massively dynamic process that changes constantly. So I guess initially when Draki started, we started as a Punjabi male mental health campaign, and all all that we wanted to do in that space was to bring through and publicly present the experiences of mental illness for Punjabi men and the opinions on mental health as a topic generally. And what, in my opinion, this served to do was to slowly question 
ideas of masculinity that we have been presented with throughout our lives. And I guess it's not me, as I was saying before, it's not me saying this needs to be done in this way, this needs to be done in that way, but it is Punjabi guys dictating and outlining their experiences in their words. And we're basically getting to the same goal of questioning and making people think about masculinities um, through people's lived experience. And so, you know, we had, you know, I think currently we have probably over 60, 65 um, Punjabi guys who have contributed to this project. And for me, it, it is fundamentally trying to make a point that things don't, we don't have to live by how we assume we should act. We don't have to live by the codes and the behaviors that our society pressurizes us with in terms of you know gender norms you know norms of sexuality um so they, yeah that was the first that was the first project that for me had a real academic base but you know we were just tr- we were just trying to find a way to make it accessible um and a way you know at the end of the day i i i really don't have answers i want people to kind of come up with these types of answers um and come up with these solutions and you know all all we are with turkey we are facilitators and we we're we're just a vehicle for people to engage people to think critically and people to then implement and sustain whatever change that they want to see or and whatever change that they have identified within the communities. It, it sounds like you have a, you put a lot of faith into the people that you serve. Yes, and I'm not going to lie, that is something that is new for me. Ah. <laughs> um, because because I'd say I definitely say the 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 educational kind of privilege I've had in my life has massively convinced me that I I know what to do. Mm. Um, and my constant thing is. Okay, at the end of the day, you know, I might I might know what to do. I might think I know what to do. But in reality, the answers for a lot of these things and the sustainability part of it, it needs to come from people. And if mm-hmm. I don't have faith in people, then what what is the point? Um and yeah, that's been a real learning curve for me. Honest and I'm being I'm going to be honest about it because you know, our our society doesn't really make it easy for us to have faith in other people especially in the uk like if someone smiles or says hello to you you're automatically suspicious um you know it's it's something that we're not we're not really raised with um within you know within kind of say british society so that's been a that's been a real learning curve for me um and i'm really enjoying it because you know, you're. We're in, I'm engaging with people who I probably wouldn't have engaged with usually. I wouldn't have been able to actually access them because I probably would have been so siloed in my, mm-hmm. you know, in my kind of educational or my social structures, which were very, which are very privileged spaces. I would have been very siloed in that and unable to actually access people who were actually trying to work with through Turkey. Um, so yeah, in that sense, at the end of the day, like. Turkey, Turkey might be kind of growing, but I am definitely learning so much from yes. this type of work. And at the end of the day, if I'm not learning anything from it, then you know I, there is something wrong with me and how I'm engaging with it. Um, mm. 
so yeah it's 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 sweet it's sweet in that sense that's a lesson uh what what a lesson for anybody who's pursuing a higher education i think you know i mean it's it it touches on themes that we've already discussed, but, you know, these institutions are institutions and they are built by wealth and power and privilege. And, and, uh, if you're in those, um, this is the interesting thing about the whole sort of conversation around representation. It's like, um, you may be, Yes, you may be a person from an underrepresented community in these these sort of halls of power, um, um, but that does not make those halls of power um, suddenly more sympathetic or um, responsive to the needs of the communities. um, That right? It's 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 a way of sort of it's like. A, a cynical perhaps way of looking at it, but I don't think an incur- a totally incorrect one is, you know, p- universities and institutions love to hold up their, you know, funny looking people, their, you know, read not white uh, people um, to sort of demonstrate how progressive they are. Um, 100%. And I think at the core of this, so there's, the best thing I read in terms of representation really helped was um, an author called Hannah Pitkin. And Hannah Pitkin talks about different types of representation, formal representation, descriptive representation, substantive representation, and one more. But it's that whole, are we, is this a, is this descriptive representation? I.e., do you have someone that ticks this box, that box, and this box? Or is this substantive representation yeah. where this person is acting for or is actually seeking to enact change that is that is you know coming from a perspective you know a, a perspective that is not represented within these these different types of power structures um but yeah i think one of the things one of the things that i want to write about properly in the future at some point is the topic of confidence and I believe in our society there is a monopoly on confidence, um, there mm. is on legit, legit confidence, and I'm, you know, I, I can only really speak properly to um, society in the UK, uh, which also is incredibly kind of, incredibly obviously incredibly pronounced with in terms of class relations as well. But what I've experienced through my educational life is there is something in our education in in the education system in the UK that makes people believe that they can they have solutions and that they know what is right mm. and you know that undoubted undoubtedly is linked to the very exploitative and very unequal um kind of position of say private schools in the UK and even you know the the massive financial burden that is placed on families and communities um, through this type of exclusive education. Um, And, you know, I've been in seminars with people who will talk for 15 minutes, but not say anything. (laughs) And, you know, and like that, I, I personally find that absolutely incredible because what makes what makes someone feel as though one one what makes someone feel as though that they can do that and two what mm. stops other people in the room 
from calling them out on it. And yeah. for me, you know, if yeah. I'm if I'm sat in this seminar and you know, I've had this multiple occasions, um, and majority of the time it's a white dude, and if if I'm if I'm if I'm sat there and this white guy is talking about something for fifteen minutes, but he's not really saying anything at all, and no one's saying anything, and everyone is complicit in that whole process because they're not they're not saying anything yeah. to him but i've then i've then also seen the flip side of it where you know in primary and secondary school i've seen classmates who are racialized as other or racialized as black make very very intuitive and very you know critical points and that has been then shrugged off as arrogance. So, mm. you know, at what point, you know, how do these things work in terms of confidence? When does this confidence become arrogance? And when does this become legitimate? Illegitimate? And obviously, there are so many different power dynamics that play into this, whether it's class, you know, uh, racial hierarchies. But it's it's incredibly, incredibly interesting. And I think that whole monopoly on legitimate confidence is something that underscores the education system, particularly within the UK. Wow. Um, and in reality, what one, and this is really veering off the topic from mental health, but you know, <laughs> it's all good. Um, and one of the things that I guess I, uh, I feel as though I'm incredibly lucky to have had from my education experiences is that I really, I think I'm someone who can just cut through the shit with people. Okay. Um, someone who can, just see through an individual who's just speaking for the sake of it mm. and someone who can try and hold that person to account. Mm. Um, and I feel as though this is especially important is, you know, it's, it's, it's knowing how to deal with these types of knowledge, these types of um, inequalities, which, you know, hand people disproportionately hand people from certain backgrounds the ability to speak and the ability to be heard mm. um when in reality you know this is something that many communities have been excluded from this whole process yeah. of not just speaking but just you know being being heard and their voice being taken into account and i think being able to question that and being able to call that out um without real fear of consequences is something that I've taken from my education experiences. Um, and it, I think that's something at some point I really want to try and ensure that other people have access to. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like that's in part, I mean, we, we, we said that we're veering off topic, but uh, what if, you know, if nothing else, what were you doing with your friends in college when you were going through your difficult mental health period, but being allowed to sit and be heard and speak with confidence and, without the fear of, uh, of, uh, some sort of a dismissal or, or waving off mm -hmm. of your feelings. Yep. Um, and it sounds like that's what now you're, you're, you're applying maybe different frameworks and you're asking people to question specific things, uh, or, or, you know, providing people spaces to do that. But Traki is, is providing people the space to sit and be heard and speak without this fear of retribution or silencing. And that sounds like a very powerful and radical uh, thing to do. Yeah, I've, I've never um, thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I mean, what you're like to, telling me, oh, I'd like to do that someday. I'm like, 
Chenjit, you're doing that right now. There you go. It's all good. This is the lear- <laughs> this is the learning. <laughs> you needed to come on the podcast to hear there that you go. today. Yeah. To, to be told, you know. Oh God. <laughs> um. So so your work um was um so you you you're also doing work in particularly in particular with um lgbtqia communities in london um can you talk a little bit sure about that so one? you know going back and just understanding that even within communities there are different power structures that operate which may exacerbate difficulties for individuals you know using intersectionality as a, as a lens of analysis um when un- trying to understand and deconstruct the experiences of others was something that I wanted to really be quite, quite, quite thoughtful of and quite conscious of, um, and I've I've known the work of um, of Sarbat Sikhs, who which are a kind of Sikh LGBTQIA group um, or a charity, and one of the things that I wanted to ensure, you know, going back to what we were saying about you know having the having their voices heard and having access to resources i wanted to ensure that these conversations around mental health um were also taking place um within communities which have been historically excluded from the kind of you know in inverted commas the, the mainstream um because you know it's it's all it's all well and good um having having you know lots of conversations but you can still be having lots of conversations in a very narrow um part of a community you can have you know quantity um, within a very small space Um, but one of the things we wanted to think about was how we can work with different parts of Punjabi communities um to you know get this conversation and get these spaces curated um on, on 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 their terms and you know offering a level of support um for you know, these these communities and these these groups to find that space and find that find find the power in that space as well and so okay, yeah we reached out to Sarbat Sikhs and you know honestly like how a lot of this Turkey work has developed things have just fallen to our feet and you know things just work out and people come forward and people come and say oh yeah well, we can help you out with that oh yeah we have these types of expertise and then from our position, it is supporting in terms of whether it's offering mentorship to the volunteers, whether it's um, or just, you know, giving the volunteers a space to really pronounce and understand why they are volunteering. Um, because everyone comes with an experience and so everyone comes with reasoning why they want to do this work. And I think it's essential that people are able to articulate that for themselves um even if they might not understand it at the time and i guess with yeah for our work with with um sarbat and lgbtqia communities it's been it's been really cool you know i've 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 only really been kind of supporting from an arm's length uh because my main my main importance is placed on it 
ensuring that individuals within these communities can take this work for themselves. And we can support however much we can, you know, use whichever, you know, we use the networks that we've had the privilege to be in contact with to try and ensure that this work, the, the work that they're doing can continue. Um, but yeah, they, uh, there's a there's a monthly open forum uh, called uh, Kulaman, and it's open to Punjabi um, LGBTQIA communities, anyone from who identifies with those parts of those communities, to come and reflect and come and have these types of discussions about topics, you know, which are which are sometimes directly related to mental health, but then sometimes are indirectly related to mental health. Um, and that's and that's I guess that's another thing um, I've really sure. come to appreciate when having these types of discussions um, is you know what is what's your major and what's your minor what what are you you know you don't need to overtly have conversations around mental health to have conversations around mental health um you know we can talk about things like relationships we can talk about things like happiness mm-hmm. but you know we don't need to have a session mm-hmm. that is we're going to talk about you know obviously it's important and it has its place but we don't need to have a session that is mm. very overtly mental health related um and that that's been a massive learning process for me as well uh you know it's sure connecting with what people want to speak about and then just being in a place where conversations that might lead to mental health um discussions are facilitated and they are welcomed and they are and they are you know they're, they're just a part of it they're not you know silenced or they're not erased or they're not told to shush or you know they're not made to feel as a it's not an important part but yeah i think I it's know. important it's, work i mean it sounds like very important work I, and and i want us to talk a little bit in, in, in just a bit about uh, before we wrap up about um how folks can get involved and and uh you know um We'll we'll touch on that in a second, um, but I think before we wrap up, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the kind of so so you you were offered or, um, or Treki was shortlisted uh, in, in the influencer category um, back in uh, was it July or August? Um, yeah, 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 it was a few July, ago. Um, and yeah. you you were. Uh, shortlisted uh, in the influencer category for a British Indian award. I'm reading your tweet right now. And, and mm-hmm. your response um, said, however, uh, so you, you wrote recently Taraki was shortlisted for uh, in the influencer category for a British Indian award. However, I will be humbly withdrawing Taraki from this opportunity for the reasons listed in the statement below. Uh, I wish the best of luck for those who have been recognized. And I wonder if you'll let me read this statement. It's not very long. No, sure. um, I thought this was, you know, this is very well, well uh, said. Um, and it's, it's, it really is worth reading. So recently, Turkey was listed in a, as a finalist in the British Indian Awards uh, 2019 under the category of, quote, influencer. First and foremost, thank you to those who nominated us for positively communicating our grassroots work over the last 18 months alongside Punjabi communities all around the UK and abroad. However, as the moment's founder, excuse me, the movement's founder and director, I would like to humbly withdraw Treki from this opportunity. In this short statement, I look to substantiate the reasonings for this decision, which I hope are respected by readers, supporters, and the general public. The first reason for this withdrawal concerns the influencer tag ascribed to Treki. Fundamentally, Treki is a movement 
which works alongside Punjabi communities to reshape approaches to mental health. Our projects are run by volunteers and are dynamic uh, to match the diverse needs of Punjabi communities around the country. We are a mere vehicle to help organize, deploy, and sustain social change. If one is labeled an influencer, we believe that others are seen as influenced, and such logic can diminish the agency of everyone who interacts with our projects in this way, uh, shape, or form, in any way, shape, or form. We believe that all individuals have the capacity to enact change both within themselves and those around them. The second reason for this withdrawal concerns incredibly loaded labels of identity. Quote, British Indian is a commonly used term to describe those living in Britain who identify with, quote, Indian ancestry. However, the reality is that such labels are not devoid of political turbulence. My understanding of 20th century histories on the South Asian subcontinent paint a bleak picture for human rights with intense discrimination existing along lines of gender, religion, and caste. Events such as the 1992 demolition of the Babri Masjid, the 2002 anti-Muslim riots in Gujarat, and the sustained state genocide against Sikh communities spanning several decades show, in my view, how India has failed to adequately meet the needs of minority communities. To present day, individuals are discriminated against based on race, gender, caste, religion, and more complex intersections. Only recently, a Sikh father and son were publicly beaten by police officers, which is but a mere drop in the ocean of state violence Sikh and Muslim communities have felt. I consider myself as an individual who is vocal and committed to standing alongside those oppressed within social and political systems due to the reasons I listed above. I do not feel comfortable identifying myself or Tereki as an influencer or a movement identified as British Indian. I do not wish to disparage those who positively engage with the awards as my personal position is informed by, by my experiences, education, and research. And if that's not the classiest way to um, just, just <laughs> do what you were saying um, of, of clearly calling out someone just bloviating uh, and saying nothing, i.e. calling uh, Traki a, an influencer in, as a, mm. a British Indian influencer. Uh, I think you did that right there with those words. So, so uh, I mean, I, you, you obviously lay it out very clearly in your statement, but I wonder if you want to reflect a little bit on, on that experience um, and the decision. Honestly, I think, so I, for me, these awards and the award culture around what is shown to be celebration but is often a self-indulgence that I, I i find the awards some of this mm. type of awards culture incredibly incredibly difficult that's not to say every single award is you know completely meaningless but i think they have their place um and for me Firstly, as we said, the whole influencer tag completely goes against the theoretical understandings of how I right. move towards Taraki and how Taraki was created and how Taraki is constantly learning. Now, Taraki doesn't, it's not a dispenser of knowledge. You know, you don't just come and it's not like a Pez dispenser where it just kind of gives your little sweet meta bit of knowledge which people ingest and then that's it. You know, that I, personally, I find that, I find that type of idea insulting and I find the whole 
the whole, mm. you know, this isn't just this course around how we engage with social movements, but also how we engage with how we engage with things like politics as well. Like, are when we talk about this person mobilizing ten thousand people, we completely erase the individual reasonings behind every single person mobilizing themselves. And again, this is going back to what we were saying earlier by people having the capacity to enact change and people having the capacity to come up with solutions and come up with answers without you being some type of dispenser of knowledge. Um, and this, and for me, and I think I was writing this definitely around the time I was quite engrossed in uh, in the book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, and really thinking about positionality in terms of social movements, really thinking about who are we to say that we are influencing other people? you know we might we might we might provide a level of you know reflection in something that they're already thinking but who are we to say that we influence them to make this decision um so yeah that was the first 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 point and that the second point really relates to what i was saying about what we were discussing in relation to you know social structures you know different you know different manifestations of imperialism different manifestations of power which look to exclude which look to co-opt which look to forcibly assimilate um you know certain peoples into certain structures and in the case of british in, in the case of british indian personally that's not really a label i've ever identified with um and secondly yeah it's a very, very politically turbulent label, as I mentioned. It's it's something that is not devoid of mm. a lot of difficult to discuss history, a lot of history that makes many feel excluded rather than included. And for me, having these types of conversations around mental health, you know, you cannot have conversation. In my opinion, you cannot have conversations around mental health which are completely depoliticized and decontextualized. They have their place, but I think it's fundamental for people who are kind of in inverted commas working in the sector to understand that there is a context to a lot to all of this. And you know, if we're thinking about topics like intergenerational trauma, if we're thinking about the impact that state violence, and this isn't just kind of, you know putting a microscope on 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 India but if we're thinking about the state violence you know violence that can be enacted by any state and we do not and we just kind of brush it over and accept some type of award that's around mental health you know I feel as though you're not speaking truth to that situation you're not speaking truth to that context and you're in a way buying into the processes that allow for these structures to continue and the, these structures to be perpetuated. Um, so you are, you're making an intentional um, departure uh, from, from a model that um, sort of, I don't know, it's, it's quite patriarchal. It's quite uh, pat, pats you on the head and says, good job. Um you know, claims you under its sort of banner. Um, yep. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's a really big thing as well. And this isn't just around this type of thing, but there is a lot of attempted cooptation yes. um, within within these types of social movements as well. And how does one have the kind of going back to things like confidence? Does one have the confidence to say, well, you know, forget forget you, I'm going to do this and keep the keep the essence, keep the grassroots essence of what we're doing. Um, which is is difficult. Yes. It's yes. difficult. Now, um, I I think uh, I I think uh, this is we could go on for a really long time, <laughs> and I would love to, and I would love to talk uh, further about this uh, in the future. Um, but uh, in the I think uh, for today, um, can you tell folks how they can get involved with Draki and? Um, are there a way for people who are not in uh, London? Uh, is there a way for them to be involved in any way or to access resources? Yeah, so we have our Turkey website, which is www.turkey.uk. That's T-A-R-A-K-I.uk. And on there are links to all of our social media, which we used to post everything. At the moment, we have projects ongoing in london birmingham and the east midlands as well um but my main thing with people who want to be involved is i i didn't i taraki taraki didn't have only had me as a volunteer for about a year and a bit because from my position i wanted to ensure that those who were who wanted to get involved understood their rationale behind getting involved and understood what skills they wanted to develop and from our position with Draki as a facilitator as well is being able to see that broader jigsaw puzzle and thinking about where can people fit in after having conversations with mm-hmm. them and understanding them understanding where they can fit in so I guess if people want to get involved it's thinking about how what skills you want to develop, what experiences have led you to, you know, emailing or messaging saying you want to get involved. Um, and we are, I, I feel as though Turkey, I, I really, one of the things I really want to ensure with Turkey is that we remain creative and innovative in how we have these discussions around mental health. So if anyone has, you know, ideas, if anyone has little projects that they wanted to take forward, Turkey are more than happy. We're more than happy to support however we can to make those projects a reality. Um, so yeah, if people want to get involved, uh, you just drop us a, there's a contact us part on the website. You can just drop us a message through there or you can contact us on social media. We are very responsive. Awesome. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you. And so like theoretically could, let's say a Punjabi, uh, student, uh, here in the U S, um, was like, Oh, I want to start a group like this on my campus, could they reach out to you and you'd, you'd help them um, figure out how to do that? 100%. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Definitely. Well, folks, you heard it. Everybody call Shed and Jeet, figure out how to get, uh, start your chapter today. <laughs> um, but seriously, what, what excellent work um, and uh, what a innovative way to approach uh, mental health by deconstructing the within our own minds the the structures that are actually uh, making that mental health uh, really bad um 
and and uh, I'm so grateful for um, your time today and and for this discussion. And uh, I, I wish Traki much success, and and I hope you'll come back and talk to us. No, again. thank that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been a lovely reflection, and I've been learning a lot from your comments around Taraki as well, and the way it's framed. And as you were saying, you know, you know, I've I've learned a lot, <laughs> which is wicked. Well, I hope that I haven't uh, <laughs> haven't uh, just made it my own. Uh, no, no. I hope I haven't projected 100% anything. Not. It's uh, fantastic. Oh, great! Awesome. Um, Sharanji, thank you so much uh, for your thank time you. today, and we'll speak Take to you again. That was Sharanjit Singh. You can find him on Twitter at Sharanjit. Find Taraki either at Taraki on Twitter or Taraki.uk. And if you enjoyed the show and you want to support it, go to patreon.com slash the one podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash t-h-e-o-n-e podcast. If you can spare even $2, that would be a huge help in these difficult times. You can get perks like being able to listen to the show earlier than its public release. Thanks for listening.